Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, November 15th by Pastor Rod Heppel. It is the ninth message in our Fall 2020 sermon series entitled, God of Wonder. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Hi, thanks for joining us today. Anne and I have been watching, for the second time, Downton Abbey. Maybe you've seen it too. It seems a little bit more interesting now that we know the characters so well in the story. We're at the part where Lady Mary is trying to find a suitable husband. I know that's like four seasons long, but we're at the stage where Sir Richard Carlyle is the present candidate to be her husband. In his proposal to Mary Lady, he states it something like this. We'd make a good team, you and me, and we're equally matched in order to make waves in high society. To say the least, it lacked a bit of romance and the word love never entered the equation. It seemed more like a strong business proposal or a business venture together rather than a marriage proposal. It's hardly what any woman would want to hear. I think that we understand why a proposal like that just falls short. It falls short because it has nothing to do with the heart. And what I want us to look at today is maybe, just maybe, that's how we relate to God. I wonder if we approach him like it's some kind of a business venture that you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, that kind of approach. When what God really wants is our heart. You know, sometimes our interactions with God are more out of duty or religious practice than they are out of a genuine desire to love him and obey him. Today in our God of Wonder sermon series, we're going to be wondering about just that. What is it that God wants from us? Have you ever said to God exactly that question? What do you want from me? Right? I think sometimes we fill in the blank. We say things like, well, I want to please God or I want to do his will. But we all know that to try to achieve that that kind of loftiness just seems to frustrate us because we know our failure so well. Part of our sense of this inadequacy in our relationship with God and the way in which we think that he thinks about us comes from the fact that When we ask God that question, what is it that you want from me? We fill in the blank. We hear things back. Oh, you want my money. Oh, you want my time. Uh, You want my sacrifice, my devotion, all these things. Now, none of these things are wrong answers, depending on where your heart is at. But what really seems clear in God's word is that what God wants from us most is us. He wants you more than anything else. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life with God. Now, that's a pretty high price to pay so that we could be with him forever. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. So first and foremost, God wants us. God wants us to know him, to be in a right relationship with him, to commune with him. And that that starts rightly by us having God in his right place in our lives, in our hearts. And of course, that place is what we call first place. And what we mean by first place is that he is more important to me than anyone or anything else in life. Now, the first of the Ten Commandments goes like this. You shall have no other gods before me. God wants to be first in our lives. And the question that I'm asking today is, is he? Is God first in my life? But not just first place out of some sense of obligated duty because he's greater than me and I have to. But am I in a relationship with him whereby I actually care to know his heart and to live in obedience to him? Is God first in my life? 
Now, that's a pretty difficult question to answer because while we may want to say yes, and even with all of our heart, we want to say, yes, he's first place in my life. Right away, we know the challenge of living this out, that it's a daunting challenge. I mean, in our good moments, we know that God is first in our lives, but we struggle. We struggle to live this out every day faithfully, and that's the hard part, the consistency part. There's just so many competing desires in the human heart that work against us keeping God in his rightful place in our lives. Uh, we're tempted to live for wealth, uh, position, pleasure, family, love, sports, the weekend. There's a host of distractions that keep us from allowing Jesus Christ to stay in his rightful place on the throne of our lives. We call that lordship. Jesus is our Lord. Now, as I thought about this first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me, it made me stop and wonder. I mean, I was thinking about the why behind it. Why should I have no other gods before Yahweh? Now, I know that almost sounds blasphemous to ask the question. The obvious reason is because, well, he is the Lord. He's not one of many equal gods, but rather he is the one true and living God who reigns supreme above all other gods. That's who God is. He alone is the creator of heaven and earth. And if he's the creator, as we talked about a few weeks ago, then he is the rightful owner of it, including us. We are the pinnacle of his creation. I mean, the scriptures tell us that all of humanity was made in the image of God and that he breathed into us the breath of life. So for all of this, what does God want in return from us? Well, he wants us to worship him. Now, knowing this about God should evoke in our heart a love for God and a desire to serve him. That's what worship is. But as true as all of this is, I can still default to approaching him like it's my duty. That it's just out of duty that I love God and not my delight. And that seems to fall a bit short of the intention of God's desire to be in a relationship with me and with you. If our idea of worshiping God is more like the proposal of Sir Richard Carlyle to Lady Mary, then we're missing the heart's desire that God has, that we should know him and delight in him, that we might experience a deeper joy in life and a deeper purpose that he has for us. In Psalm 37, King David put it like this. He said, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That sounds a lot like the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, where he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and these things will be given to you as well. You can see how that sounds alike. Now, there's something that's a bit like a paradox in this equation. Um, we're probably more inclined to think like this. My heart wants that, so I will delight myself in that. Only to find that our heart, when it does delight in that, it quickly ends. It fades. It doesn't deliver. It doesn't satisfy. There's something about God having his right place, his first place in our hearts and lives that leads to the very joy and contentment that so often eludes us when we chase all these other desires. But when I give up my right to have what I want, and I rather submit myself to God and to his will and allowing him to have his way in that area of my life, I find that he gives me the desires of my heart. Now, don't misunderstand me here. What I'm not saying is that there's this one-to-one -one equation, that if I love God, then he gives me what I want. Not at all. I've already stated the fact that it shouldn't be a I scratch your back, you scratch my back approach to our worship of God. What I am saying is that when he is first in my life, he meets a need in me that, satisf that satisfies my heart. When I keep my eyes on Jesus, 
He meets that need in me, in my heart, in my life. Jesus said to his first disciples in Luke 9.23, Whoever wants to be my, my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and daily, daily follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So we, we find our true life when we give it to Jesus. And that is what we think is a paradox. For years, I've puzzled over the Beatitudes about, you know, what the meaning and how they work is. The Beatitudes are those statements of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount when he says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit for they, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. I mean, I've kind of puzzled over, like, how, how exactly does this work and operate? How exactly do we understand the reward that is here that mine is the kingdom of heaven? What does that exactly look like? Or you inherit the earth. But that's actually a study for another sermon series. The one beatitude that I want to focus on in relationship to our talk here today is this one, where he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be, what? For they shall be filled the one who desires righteousness will be filled. So what does it mean to be filled? We, we know what that means in other situations. When something is full, there's no more room in it, right? It's, it's complete. Like if you're hungry, you eat a meal, and then after the meal, you're no longer hungry because you've satisfied your hunger. Those who desire the righteousness of God are filled or are satisfied in two ways. One, there's the ultimate sense that we are saved by God's grace once and for all. We are his, it is finished, it's complete. That's the sense of being filled. But the second one has to do with the desires of our heart or our soul being satisfied through the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for God and his way of doing things. That when we stop chasing and seeking after all these other things, but rather desire God and his righteousness, that we find the contentment that our hearts are looking for, that we are filled. So I see a pattern here. I want to step us through this. In Psalm 37, we read, take the light in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then in Matthew 6, 33, we read, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And then finally, in Matthew 5, 6, we read, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Do you see this pattern that I'm seeing here? That the person who puts God first, who seeks him first in their life, is the one who receives something in their heart that brings satisfaction, peace, contentment, joy, rest, whatever it is that our unsettled hearts so deeply long for. We desire, we want, we need, and then we go chasing things to fill it, to meet it, to satisfy it, and it never does. Our money leaves us feeling empty. Our positions leave us feeling empty. Our pleasure is empty. Even our relationships are empty. None of them truly or fully satisfy until God is in his rightful place in our lives, in first place. All of these things do serve a purpose in life. It's not wrong. They're not bad. But it's just that we have them in the wrong order of importance. You shall have no other gods before me. God needs to be first place in our lives. And the question I'm asking, is he? Is he first place in my life? Now, in the New Testament, this issue was brought up to Jesus in a very interesting way, and it was brought to Jesus by the religious leaders of the day. 
But first we need to understand a little bit about who these people were. They saw themselves as the experts in knowing God and his righteous standards, the law. And, and that by knowing the laws and by keeping them, they were right with God, or at least they were more spiritual than the rest of the people. In essence, they were the gatekeepers of this truth for the common folk. But then Jesus comes along, and he starts to shake things up. I mean, his teachings go deeper, and his teachings make more sense than what the religious leaders are teaching. Jesus teaches the purpose of why the law was given and what the intention of it was, and they're professing to keep this, and Jesus is showing that they really don't, and they aren't pleasing God because they're not actually right with God. You see, their hearts were full of pride, and they were hardened towards God. They, it was hypocrisy. They were saying one thing and then doing another. And over and over again, you will see in the Gospels this encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders, and it just it made them mad. So what did they do? They tried to trap him. Uh, they tried to trap him, trap him to prove that he was wrong or that he wasn't an expert in these matters like they were. Now, there were a few different groups of these religious political leaders that Israel had at this time. Uh, there were the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Essenes, and, and more. And you've probably heard these different groups. They represented different interests of Jewish religion and life. Uh, they didn't all see eye to eye with each other. And in fact, they disagreed a lot and were very divided and thought ill of each other. However, they were united around one common enemy, and that was Jesus. Maybe Rome as well, but in this case, for sure, Jesus. They couldn't stand who he was and what he represented. He, had, he hadn't come up through their systems. He didn't belong. He didn't have any right to be as authoritative on the scriptures as he was, nor as popular with the people as he was. So, at certain times, these religious leaders band together to try and discredit Jesus. Now, in Matthew 22, we read about three different attempts of these kinds of attacks on Jesus. So the first one was the Pharisees who linked up with the Herodians to try and trap Jesus about whether or not the Jewish people should pay taxes to the Roman emperor, to Caesar. You're probably familiar with this story. Um, you know, they failed miserably to trap Jesus because Jesus asked them for a coin. And then he asked, well, whose inscription is on the coin? And when they answered Caesar's, Jesus just told them, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. He totally stumped them. In fact, he embarrassed them. So then the next group comes along. The second attempt was made by the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they put together this ridiculous hypothetical scenario based on a law in Deuteronomy about if a man's brother were to die, then he was to marry his brother's wife to keep his brother's family line going. Now, in an attempt to try and discredit the idea of the resurrection, the Sadducees proposed uh, this little fictional story. A family with seven brothers and the first man married and then he died, leaving his, his wife to his next brother to marry her to, to carry on the family line for the brother. But then that brother died too. And so then the next brother and so on down the line. So this was their scenario that this woman was married to seven different brothers. Like I said, it was a ridiculous story. They then asked Jesus, so at the resurrection, who would be the rightful husband of this woman in heaven? I mean, if all seven of these men were were married to this woman or this woman to these men while on earth, then in heaven, whose husband would be the rightful husband of, of the wife? 
Now, I'm sure that at times Jesus just rolled his eyes at these kinds of predicaments they threw his way. They thought that they had him trapped because she'd been married to all seven of them at one time. And now in heaven, they would be breaking or she would be breaking God's law, some incestuous marriage law, something along those lines. Well, Jesus unravels their theology in about two seconds flat when he tells them that they don't know the scriptures that they do, the scriptures do teach the resurrection, and they don't know the power of God because God can raise the dead, and they don't know about heaven because in heaven there will be no marriage. There's no giving or taking in marriage in heaven. Well, that ended that dilemma. The Pharisees decide to take one last final run at Jesus to try and stump him. So they elect an expert in the law to pose him a difficult question. It seems that there had been this ongoing debate amongst the elite of the day to see who could sum up all 613 of the Old Testament laws in, in a single statement. So here's how it's put in Matthew chapter 22, uh, starting at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6. And then he said, this is the first and greatest of the commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And that's from Leviticus 19. Now you can imagine their shock when Jesus gave such a perfect answer to such a difficult question. I mean, he doesn't miss a beat. If keeping the law was a sign of being close to God or of pleasing God or of doing God's will, then the one that could capture the essence of it was worthy to teach it. So what does Jesus say? He says, when you take everything in the Old Testament about what God has instructed, his law, his commands, what it is that he wants from us, and, and you boil it down, it boils down to loving God above all else and loving those that God has made. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, David kind of captured this loving God in Psalm 42. He said, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Well, we know what it's like to thirst for water. I remember growing up on our farm in the heat of the summer and you're working out in those fields and you're far away from any water and you're really thirsty. And then finally it came time to change the irrigation system and you could get a good fresh cold drink of water and it was so satisfying. So we know humanly what it's like to thirst but how do we thirst for God? How do we thirst spiritually? David's thirst is to meet with God. Where do I go and meet or where can I go to meet with God he says. You know, when we meet with God, when we actually stop and allow the things of this world to just fade away, we gain a perspective on life and eternity that gives us peace. Peace with God. Peace with our surroundings. Even when there is no peace. We stop desiring all that is fading because we see it for what it is. It's moth, it's rust, and we desire rather the wholeness that only God can give us. Isn't that what our heart truly desires? You know, for those of us who have come to trust in Jesus Christ, you and I, we, we know that the only righteousness we have is found in Jesus. That's how we're made right with God. That all of our striving achieves nothing for our salvation. That it's only by faith in Jesus that we are now saved. But, but now what? What does God want from me now as his child? 
He doesn't want to just leave me here. God, God is somewhere where he wants to take me. He invites me into a relationship with him whereby I can know him better. I can love him more. I can worship and serve him faithfully. That's what God has for me. And in so de- doing, he meets the desire of my heart. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, David said. So to delight in the Lord means we need to set our minds on him. We desire what we focus on. If we focus on the things of the world, then we're going to continue to desire the things of the world more. But if we focus on God, then we will desire God more. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with him, with God? I'll leave you with a passage of scripture that I think could guide our thinking this week in this desire of our heart to seek God and to delight ourselves in the Lord. So maybe take this passage, maybe memorize it. Philippians 4, 6 to 8. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. My prayer for each of us, myself included, is that as we draw near to God and meet with him, we will desire God above all else, and that in so doing, we will find that the desire of our heart is met in him. So God bless you as you walk with him this week. Now I want to ask you to join me in your hearts as I lead us in prayer and pray for God's blessing on us. So please pray with me. Father, we know that this world has many things that can kind of distract our attention from what is most important. While there are many good things that you give us, sometimes we take those good things and we put them ahead of you in our lives. And today we are saying that we don't want that. We want to have no other God before us but you, the true and living God. And so I I would pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, that we would be able to make choices and decisions in our lives that truly show that you are first in our lives. And Lord, I would pray again by your Holy Spirit that as we draw near to you, as we meet with you, we would find that you alone meet the desire of our heart. So I pray for any person today. I know that there are many that are struggling. I know that there are a lot of challenges that are before us in the times in which we're living. And I pray that we would draw near to you and find that you are the one who satisfies our heart. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So our questions for today, I have three discussion questions and one reflection question, okay? So first off, have you ever wanted something so badly and then once you had it, it didn't make you happy, or at least not for very long, or you lost interest in it? Second question, is there a story that you can share of a time when you gained clarity on the futility of chasing the things of this world. Thirdly, why do you think it's so hard to keep God in first place in our lives? And then for personal reflection, is there something right now that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about that you know that you need to surrender to God because it stands between you and him? God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next week right here. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.